0: Hey there. Thanks for listening. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Brian through his PyTest book. So if you want to get hands on and learn something with Python, be sure to consider our courses over at TalkPython Training. Visit them via pythonbytes.fm slash courses. And if you're looking to do testing and get better with PyTest, check out Brian's book at pythonbytes.fm slash PyTest. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome
1: to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 265, recorded January 5th, 2022. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Matt Kramer. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, welcome, Matt. Who are you?
2: Oh, so a huge fan. I've listened to every episode. Um, I actually, I'm one of these folks that started their career outside of software. Um, I've heard a similar parallel story bunch of times in the past. So I have my degree actually in, uh, Naval architecture, and marine engineering, which is design of ships and offshore structures. Um, wow. in, grad, in grad school, I started, I was started with MATLAB, picked up Python, uh, thanks to a professor. And then over time that's just grown and grown, um, spent eight years in the oil and gas industry, um, and using Python mostly for doing engineering analysis, a lot of digital type stuff, um, IOT type monitoring work and, uh, about three months ago, I joined Anaconda as a software engineer, and I'm working on our Nucleus cloud platform as a backend software.
0: Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, congrats on the new job as well. That's a big change from oil and gas <laughs> to took a uh, couple of years. I, I mean, it is in Texas and all, but it's still, yeah. uh, it's still on the tech side.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's related, but obviously a different focus. I wanted to make writing code my job rather than the thing I did to get my job done. So fantastic.
0: Yeah, not, I'm sure you're having a good time.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Michael, we had some questions for people last week.
0: We did. Uh, I want to make our first topic a meta-topic. And by right. that, I mean a topic about Python bytes. So you're right. We discussed a, whether the format, which is sort of, I wouldn't say changed. Its, I would rather categorize it as drifted over time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of drifted to adding this little thing or doing that different thing. And we just said, hey, everyone, do you, do you still like this format? It's not exactly what we started with, but it's, it's where we are. So we asked some questions. The first question I asked, which I have an interesting follow-up at the end here, by the way, is, is Python bytes too long at 45 minutes? That's roughly the, the time that we're, we're going these days, probably about 45 minutes. And so I would say, got to do the quick math here. I would say 70, 65%, let's say 65% are like, no, it's good. With a third uh, of that being like, are you kidding me? It could go way longer. I'm not sure we want to go way longer. But right. there are definitely uh, a couple of people that think, yeah, it's, it's getting a little bit long. So I would say probably 12% of people said it's too long. So I feel like it's actually kind of a, a, a decent length. And one of the things I, th- I thought, it's like, as we've changed this format, we've added things on, right? We added the joke that we started always doing at the end. We added our extra, extra, extra stuff. But the original format was the, the six items. You covered three, I covered three. Now it's two, two. And we got Matt here to help out with that. Yeah. So what is the length of that? And it turns out that that's pretty much the same length still. So the last episodes, 39 minutes, 32 minutes, 35 minutes, 33 minutes. That's how long are our main segments up to oh, okay. the end of the minute. So it's kind of like for people who feel it's too long, I wanted to sort of say, like, feel free to just delete it. Like you hear the six items, like delete it at that point. If you don't want to hear the, us ramble about other things that are not pure Python, you don't want to hear us talk about the joke or tell jokes, no problem yeah just just, stop. just just stop it's at the end for a reason, so if yeah. you're kind of like,', all right, well, I'm kinda of done, then then be done that's totally good yeah. um, we'll put the important stuff up first uh the other one was uh do you like us having a third co-host like Matt or uh Shell or whoever it is we've had on recently, and most people love that format or you know or at least that's okay. I, it's okay. okay, so that's like I, I think that that's that's pretty good. I do want to read out just a couple of comments as well there's stuff that you always get that are, are like you just can't balance it. A couple of people are saying like, you just got to drop the joke. Like, don't do that. The other people are like, the joke is the best. Who doesn't want to stay for that? So, <laughs> you know, like, well, again, it's at the end. So um, you you can do yeah. that. But I also just wanted to say thank you, everybody. They they wrote a ton of nice comments to you and me at the end of that Google forum. So um, one is, I can't tell what counts as an extra or normal, but it's fine. I love it. By the bytes is such an excellent show. Fun way to keep current. Um, Brian is awesome. Um, oh, good. I asked yeah, my yeah.
1: daughter to submit that.
0: So. <laughs> she did good. I think your third guest, having a third guest is great. Like I said, drop the jokes, keep the jokes for sure. Ideal. Um, I, so anyway, there, there's a bunch of uh, nice comments. I think the yeah. other thing uh, that I would like to just speak to real quick and get your thoughts on, and, and maybe you as well, Matt, because you've been on the receiving end of this a lot, is us having the live audience, right? I think having a live audience is yeah. really interesting. I also want to just acknowledge like we knew that that would be a slight drift of format right so if you're listening in the car and there's a live audience comment it's kind of like well but i'm not listening to it live that's kind of different but i think it's really valuable one time we had four maybe four python core developers commenting on the stuff we were covering like that's a huge value to have people coming and sort of feeding that in so for me Personally, I feel like it's, yeah, it's a little bit of a, a blend of formats, but I think having the feedback from the audience, especially when people are involved in what we're talking about, I think that's worth it. Brian, what do you think?
1: Well, Back. we, we, we try not to, uh, to let it interrupt the flow too much, but there's some great stuff. Like if somebody, uh, if we say something that's just wrong, uh, somebody will correct us. And that's, that's nice. Um, the other thing is, Uh, sometimes somebody has a great question on a topic that like, we should have, we should have talked about, but we didn't, we didn't, we we didn't. Right.
0: We don't know everything. We certainly don't. Um, so I I do want to add one more thing. Um, the, there was a comment like, Hey, we as hosts should let the guests speak. We should be better interviewers. I'm like, this is not an interview <laughs> format, you know. Like, talk Python is a great interview format. Oh, that's where the guest is featured. Testing coder is a great form interview format where the guest is featured. This is sort of just three people chatting. It's not really an interview format. So, uh, and and we always advice.
1: tell the guests to interrupt us, and they yeah. just
0: they don't much. So yeah, yeah. So Matt, what do you think <clears throat> of this live audience aspect? Like, do you feel like that tracks or is it good? Well, yeah. First of all, thank. I'm I'm a, I'm glad
2: that. Uh, people generally like having a guest. Otherwise, this would have been very awkward. Um, but no, I, I do like it. I think- Well, where'd Matt go? Oh, he must have disconnected. <laughs> there was one. Occasionally, there is a kind of a a little bit of a disruption, but I think in general, it's been great. Yeah, I've definitely been a, listening when times when, um you know, a bunch of people are chiming in because there's always, as you know, that you you mentioned a GUI library and then there's about 12 other options that you may not have covered. <laughs> exactly. And, instead of waiting 12 weeks, you could just get them right out. Um so I think that's great, and I, I'm I'm generally a, a audio listener. I listen when I'm walking my dogs, but but I love having the video because when I am very when I'm interested in something, I can go hop
0: to it right away and, and see what you're showing, uh, which I really like. So yeah, awesome, thank you. Uh, two other things that came to mind. Someone said it would be great if there's a way where we could submit like ideas and stuff like that for guests uh, and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Um, Right here at the top in our menu, it says submit. <laughs> so please uh, t- reach out to us on Twitter, send us an email, do submit it there. The other one was uh, if we could have time links, like if, if you go to the, the to listen and at some certain time a thing is interesting that's mentioned, it'd be cool if you could like link at, at a time. If you look in your podcast player, it has chapters and each chapter has both a link and a time. So uh, like the thing that Brian's going to talk about next interpreters if you want to hear about that during that section in your podcast player you can click the chapter title and it will literally navigate you to there so it's already built in just make sure you can see it in your device yeah all right Uh, i think that's it uh for that one but yeah thank you for everybody who had comments and and took the time really appreciate it
2: yeah and just the comment if you uh if you want to be a guest just email on that form (laughs) and you might be able to
1: do it
0: (laughs) that's right that's right yeah great to have you here um. Actually, I didn't
1: want to talk about interpreters.
0: No, that's me. <laughs> oh wait, you're right. Well, you're talking about it now because I, I've changed. It. No, let's yeah. talk about adders. Sorry, I, I saw the wrong screen. No, here, go for that's,
1: it. That's <laughs> what, apparently, we're not professional here, but uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about adders. We I, we haven't really talked about it much for a while because there are lots of reasons. But adders is a great library and it just came out with adders uh, came out with a release 21.3.0, which is why we're talking about it now. And there's some document, there's a little bit of change, there's some changes and some documentation changes. And I really, uh, in an article I wanted to cover. So one of the things you'll see right off the bat, if you look at the, doc, the overview page of the adders site is, is it, is highlighting the, uh, the define, uh, decorator, it's a different kind of way that if you've used adders from years ago, this is a little different. So the, there's a there's there was a different way to, to a different API that was added in the last release, and this is um, our, or in one of the previous releases, and now that's the the preferred way. So this is what we're calling modern adders. Um, but along with this, I wanted to talk about an article uh, that Hinnick wrote um, about. About adders, and it's a little bit of a history, and I really love this discussion. So, um, and I'll try to quickly go through the history. Uh, early on, we didn't have data classes. Obviously, we had we could handcraft classes, but there were problems with it. And there was a library called Characteristic, which I didn't know about. This was this was uh, before I started looking into things um, that. And then Glyph and Hinnick in in 2015 were discussing it, ways to change it. And that begat the old original adders um, interface. And there were things like adder.s and adder attrib that were partly out of the fact that the old way of characteristic attribute was a lot of typing. So they wanted something a little shorter. Um, and then it kind of took off. Um, it, adders was pretty pretty popular for a long time especially fueled by a 2016 article by Glyph called The One Python Library Everyone Needs, uh, which was a great, uh, this is kind of how I learned about it. Um, and then uh, there was a you know different kind of API that we were used to for adders, and it was good. And everything was great. And then in 2017, uh, Guido and Hinnick and Eric Smith talked about, um, at, in the PyCon 2017, they talked about how to make something like that in the standard library Uh, and that came out of that came pep 557 and data classes and data classes showed up in uh in python 3.7 um and then so what then a dark period happened which was people were like why do we need adders anymore if we have data classes well um that's one of the things i like about this this article and then there's a an attached article that is called why not uh why not Uh, why not data classes instead of adders? And, um, and this is, uh, uh, it's, it's important to realize that data classes have always been a limited set of adders. Adders was a, is a superset of functionality and there's a lot of stuff missing in data classes, like, uh, like uh, equal equality customization and validators, validators and converters are very important if you're using a lot of these, um, um, and then also people were like, "Well, data classes kind of a nicer interface, right?" Well, not anymore. Um, <laughs> the uh, the pound defines pretty, or the at defines really nice. This is a really easy interface now to work with. So anyway, yeah, and it has typing, and it has typing. Um, and and I'm glad he wrote th- wrote this because I'm I kind of was one of those people of like, um, am I doing something wrong if I'm if I'm uh, using data classes? Uh, why should I? look at adders and one of the things there's a whole bunch of reasons one of the things that i really like is adders uh has uh slots the the slots are on to by by default so you have um you kind of define your class once instead of uh keeping it growing whereas the default python way in data classes is to allow classes to grow at runtime have more more attributes but that's not really how a lot of people use classes so if you If you came from another language where you have to kind of define the class once and not at runtime, um, Adders might be a closer fit for
0: you. I like it. And it's whether you say at define or at data class, pretty similar. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Adders is really cool. I
2: I personally haven't used it, but I've always wanted to try it. Um, We're using FastAPI and and Pydantic. So I've really come to like that library. But Adders is something that looks really full featured and
0: nice. Um, Definitely something I want to pick up. Yeah, it's cool. And Pydantic also seems very inspired by data classes, which I'm learning now. I suspected, but bo- now learning that is actually inspired by adders and they kind of sort of leapfrog each other in this this same trend, yeah. which is interesting. Yep. So, yeah, cool. Good one, Brian. Matt, I, I thought Brian was going to talk about this, but you can talk about it if you want. This would be me, yeah. <laughs> um, so,
2: this one's not strictly Python related, but I think it's very relevant to Python. Um, so I mentioned earlier, I I came from a non-CS background um, and I've always, I've just been going down the rabbit hole for about 10 years now, trying to understand everything and pick it up and and really connect the dots between how do these very flexible objects that you're working with every day, how do those get actually implemented? Um, and so the first thing I did, if you heard of this guy, Anthony Shaw, um, yeah, I think he's been <laughs> mentioned once or twice, he wrote a great yeah. book, uh, shout out, Python Internals. Really, yeah, like that Anthony. Book.
0: Anthony's out in the audience. He even says yeah, happy, happy New Year's. Hey, yeah. Happy New Year's.
2: <laughs> so this book is great if you want to learn how C Python's implemented. Um, but because I don't have a traditional CS background, I've always wanted. You know, I felt like I wanted to get a little bit more to the fundamentals. And I don't remember where I found out about this book, but Crafting Interpreters. Um, I got the paperback here too. I highly recommend it. It's 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 a um, implementation of a language from start to finish. Every line of code is in the book. Uh, it's a dynamic interpreted language, um, much like Python. Um, but I really like how the book is structured. So it is, uh, it was written over, I think five years in the open. Um, I, I think the paperback may have just come out last year, but you walk through every step from tokenization, scanning, building a syntax tree, um, and all the way through the end. But what I really like about it is, is you actually, uh, you develop two separate interpreters for the same language. So the first one is written in Java. Um, it's a direct, um, evaluation of the abstract syntax tree. Um, so that was really how I got a lot of these bits in my head about what is an abstract syntax tree? How do you start from there? How do you represent these types? But the second part is actually very, where I think it becomes really relevant for Python because you, the second part is written in C it's a bytecode virtual machine, um, with garbage collection. So it's not exactly the same as Python. But if you want to dig down into how would you actually, you know, implement this with the types that you have available for you in C, um, but get something flexible, much like Python, I really recommend this. Um, so again, it's not directly, there's some good side notes in here where they, he compares, you know, different implementations between different languages like, um, Python and JavaScript, et cetera, Ruby. But I really like this book. I devoured it during my time between jobs and, um, yeah, I, I keep telling everyone about it.
0: So I thought it would be good for the community to hear. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I didn't study this stuff in college either. I mostly studied math and things like that. And so understanding how virtual machines work and, and all that is just how code executes. I think it's really important. You know, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you actually need to know how to do in terms of you got to get anything done with it. But sometimes your intuition of like, if I ask the program to work this way and it doesn't work as you expected, you expect, you know, maybe understanding that internal is like, Oh, it's because the, it's really doing this and everything's all scattered out on the heap. And I thought numbers would be fast. Why are numbers so slow? But okay, I understand now.
2: Yeah. I I, I really liked the. I mean, it answered a lot of questions for me, like how does a hash map work? Right. That's a dictionary in Python. What is a yeah. stack? Why would you use it? What is the, when you do a disassemble and you see bytecode, what does that actually mean? Right. Mm. Um, so yeah. I really, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And he's got a really great um, book open source. It's got a really great build system. If you're interested in writing a book, it's very cool how the adding lines of code and things like that are all embedded in there. And he's got tests um, written for every part where you add a new, you know, a new bit to the code. There's tests written and there's ways where he uses macros and
0: things to block them out. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Nice. Testing (laughs) books. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, now being at Anaconda, like that world, the the Python world over in the data science stack and especially around there has so much of like here's a bunch of C and here's a bunch of Python and they kind of go together does this give you a deeper understanding of what's happening
2: yeah uh, for sure i think um c python internals gave me a really good understanding a bit about a bit more about the c api and and why that's important um it is i'm sure you well you know and the listeners may know like the binary compatibility is really important um between the two and dealing with locking and the the uh, global interpreter lock and everything like that um, so it's definitely given me a better conceptual view of how these things are working. As you mentioned, I don't, you don't need to know it necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but I've just found that it's given me a much better mental model.
0: Having an intuition is valuable. Yeah. A uh, quick audience feedback. Sam out in the live audience says, I started reading this book over Christmas day and it's an absolute joy. So yeah, very cool. Uh, one more vote of confidence for you there. Cool. Um, Brian, are we ready for my, my next one? Yes, definitely. A little uh, Yamale. Yeah, I'm hungry. So, this one is cool. Uh, it's called Yamale or Yamily. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but it was suggested by Andrew Simon. Thank you, Andrew, for sending this in. And the idea of this is we work with YAML files that's often used for configuration and whatnot. But if you want to verify your YAML, right, it's just text. Maybe you want to have some YAML that has a number for a value. Or you want to have a string. Or maybe you want to have true-false. Or you want to have some nested thing, right? Like you could say, I'm going to have a person in my YAML. And then that person has to have fields or values set on it, like a name and an age. With this library, you can actually create a schema that talks about what the shape and types of these are, much like data classes. And then you can use Yamali to say, given a YAML file, does it validate? Think kind of like Pydantic is for JSON. This is for YAML, except it doesn't actually parse the result out. It just tells you whether or not it's it's correct. Isn't that cool? I think it looks neat. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's uh, pretty easy to work with. Uh, obviously requires modern Python. It has a CLI version, right? So you can just say, Yamali, give it a schema, give it a file, and it'll go through and and check it it has a strict and a non-strict mode it also has an api so and then to use it just say yamali.validate schema and data either in code or on the cli and in terms of schemas like i said it looks like data classes you just have a file like name colon stir age colon int and then you can even add additional limitations like the max integer value has to be 200 or less which is pretty cool uh then also like i said you can have um more complex structures so for example they have what they call a person but then the person here actually you can nest them so you could have like part of your yaml could have a person in it and then your person schema could validate that person so very much like Pydantic, but for yaml files like here you can see scroll down there's a an example of i think it's called recursion is how they refer to it (laughs) but you can have like nested versions of these things and so on so if you're working with yaml and you want to validate it through unit tests or some data ingestion pipeline or whatever, you just want to make sure you're loading the files correctly, then you might as well hit it with some Yamali, I'm guessing.
1: One of the things I like about stuff like this is that um, things like YAML files, sometimes people just sort of edit it in, in the Git repo uh, <laughs> instead of making sure it works first. and then it gets And then having a, a CI stage that says, hey making sure the uh, the YAML's valid syntax is, is pretty nice so that you um, so that you know it before it blows up somewhere else with some weird error message. So
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, this is really cool. the Validation of these types of input files, especially YAML files, is really tough, I've found, just because it's indentation-based, and um, whitespace <laughs> is not a bad thing, obviously, but for YAML, it's tough. I, I can't tell you how many hours I've banged my head against the wall in a past life um, trying to get Ansible scripts to run and things like that. So, this is really neat. Yeah, um, and any, cool. Anytime I see something like this, I just wish that there was one way to describe those types somewhere, like, <laughs> and if, preferably in Python, just
0: because I like that more. But this is really cool. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of pedantic mapping to YAML instead of to JSON. Uh, and you can just kind of run it through there. But yeah, I think this is more of a challenge than it is, say, for JSON, because JSON, there's a validity to the file, regardless of what the schema is, where YAML, less so right like well if you didn't indent that well it just that means it belongs somewhere else i guess you know it's a little a little more freeform so i guess that's why it's popular but also nice to have this validation so yeah thank you for andrew thank you to andrew for sending that in um
1: yeah so next i wanted to talk about pimpler uh which is great name (laughs) um and i I honestly can't remember where I saw this. I think it was a post uh, or something by Bob Belderbos um, or something he wrote on PyBytes. I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, so I'll give him credit. Maybe it was somebody else. So if it was somebody else, I apologize. But anyway, what is Pimpler? Pimpler is a little tiny library, which has a few tools in it. And it has uh, one of the things it says is um, uh, one of the things I saw it does a few things, but what I it, it measures, monitors, and analyzes memory behavior in Python objects. Um, but the it's the memory size thing that that was interesting to me. So um, you've got uh, like for instance, uh, it, it has three three tools built into it: a size of and muppy, which is a great <laughs> name, uh, and class tracker. So a size of is a um, provides a basic size information for one or a set of objects. And Muppy is a monitoring. I didn't play with this. I didn't play with the class tracker. Either class tracker provides offline
0: analysis of lifetimes of Python objects. Might be yeah, interesting. interesting. Maybe, maybe if you've got a memory leak, you could see like there's a hundred yeah. thousands of my hundreds of thousands of this type. And I thought I only had three of them.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things that I really liked of, uh, with a size of is uh, it's, it, it, I mean, we already have, um uh sys get size of in python but that just kind of tells you the size of the object itself not of the um like later on so a right. size of will tell you not just what the size of the object is but all of the recursively it goes recursively and and uh, looks at the size of all the stuff that it can,
0: contents of it so right and people haven't looked at this you know they should check out Anthony's book right but if you've got a list and say the list has a hundred items in it and you say, what is the size of the list? The list will be roughly 900 bytes because it's 108-byte pointers plus a little <laughs> bit of overhead. Those pointers could point at megabytes of memory. You yeah. could have 100 megabytes of stuff loaded in your list, and if it's really only 100, like, no, that's 900 bytes, not 800 megabytes or whatever, right? So you really need to, if you actually care about real whole memory size, you got to use something like A size. Up. It's cool that this is built in. I, I had to write this myself, and uh, it was not as fun. Yeah, this is awesome. I, I also, I,
2: I hit this, um, sometime in grad school. I remember when I was gonna add a deadline or something and, uh, just, I hit the same thing about the number of bytes in a list being so small and just writing something that was hacky to try to do the same thing, but to have it so nice and available is great. And the name is awesome. I love (laughs) silly names.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, one of the example, and I, I was confused that uh, the example we're showing on the screen is uh, just a, there's, you've got a, a list of um, a few items. Some of it's a text to so, uh, some of them are integers and some are lists of integers or tuples of integers and being able to go down and, and do the size of everything. But then there's also a, you can get more detailed. You can uh, give it um, a sized uh, a size uh, with, with a detail numbers i'd have to look at the api to figure out what all this means but the example shows each element uh, not just the total but each element what the size of the different components are which is kind of cool but it lists like a flat size and i'm like what's the flat thing so i had to look that up and uh flat the uh, flat size returns the flat size of a python object in bytes determined as the basic size so like in these examples it's uh like the tuple is just a flat uh the tuple itself is 32 bytes, but the, the tuple
0: and its contents is 64. Sort of I thing. see. So flat is like size of, and size is a size of that bit. <laughs> I, the think, recursive. Yeah, I, I think, think that's so. what it is. Uh, but
1: yeah, not
0: sure. But that's what yeah, I'm thinking. So for people who are listening, they don't see this. You should check out the docs page, right? Like a usage yeah. example. Because if you have a, a list containing a bunch of stuff, you can just say basically print this out and it shows line by line this part of the the list was this much and then it pointed at these things each of those things is this big and it has constituents and, and so on. Uh, yeah. My theory is that the detail equals one is recursed one level down but don't keep traversing to like show the size of numbers and stuff. Yeah, probably. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I love it. This is great. Yeah. Oop.
2: <laughs> all right.
0: Matt, think it's all.
2: Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about HV plot and uh, HV plot interactive, um, specifically. Um, so this is something I actually wasn't very aware of until I joined Anaconda, but one of my colleagues, uh, Philip Rodeger, who I know is on talk Python uh, at one point, um, is our, is the developer working on this. And there's basically there's, you know, when you're working in the PyData ecosystem, there's pandas and x and Dask, there's all these different data frame type interfaces. And there's a lot of plotting interfaces. And there's a project called hollow views or HV plot, which is a consistent plotting API for that you can use. And, and the really cool part about this is, is you can swap the backend. So for example, um, pandas default plot, will use dot plot and it'll make a Matplotlib. plot but if you want to use something more interactive, like bokeh or HoloViews, views, um, you can just change the backend and you can use the same commands to do that. Um, so that's, oh, that's really cool. Neat. And
0: you set it on the, on the data frame. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: Right? So what you. What you do is you import hvplot.pandas, and then on the data frame, if you change the backend, you just do data frame Um, and there's a bunch of kind of, you know, rational defaults built in for how it would show the different columns in your data frame, um, versus the index. And then I, you I like can... that.
0: Cause you could swap out the plots by writing one line, even if you've got hundreds of lines of plotting and stuff, right. And it just picks it up.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, and the common workflow for a data scientist is you got Oh, you're reading in a lot of input data, right? Then you want to transform that data. So you're doing um, generally a lot of method chaining uh, is a common pattern where you want to do things like filter and select a time and maybe pick a, drop a column and do all kinds of things, right? At the end, you either want to show that data or write it somewhere or plot it, which is very common. Um, now this interactive part, um, Philip demoed this or he gave a talk at PyData Global about two months ago, I think. Um, it kind of extends on that. And this blew my mind when I saw it. So um, if you had a data frame like thing and you put .interactive after it, then you can put your method chaining after that. So I'll, this is an example where you say, I want to select a discrete time and then I want to plot it. And this, is, this particular example is not, doesn't have a kernel running in the back end, so it's not going to switch. But if you were running this um, in an actual live uh, notebook, it would be changing the time on this chart. And again, this is built to work with the, um, a lot of the big data type APIs that match the Pandas API.
0: Nice. Um, so for people listening, if you say .interactive and then you give the parameter that's meant to be interactive, that just puts one of those I Python widget yeah. things into your notebook right there, right? That's cool. Yeah.
2: So a, a related uh, library is called Panel, which is, um, it is for building dashboards directly from your notebooks. Um, so you can, if you had a, a Jupyter notebook, you could say panel serve and pass in the notebook file, um, and it'll make a dashboard. That's the thing I want to show in a, in a in a second here. But the w- the way the interactive works is really neat. So wherever you would put a number, you can put one of these widgets, and so you can have time selectors, you can have things like um, sliders, and you can have input boxes and things like that. And all you do is you would change the place where you put your input number. put one of those widgets in and then it sort of, it, it, I actually don't know how it works exactly under the hood, but from (laughs) what I understand, you put this interactive in and then it's capturing all the different methods that you're adding onto it. And anytime one of those widget changes, it will change everything from that point on. Um, and so the, the demo here was from another panel contributor, Mark Scoff matson um, and I'm just going to play this and try to explain it. So we have a data pipeline on the right where we've chained methods together. Um, And what he's done here is he's just placed a widget in as a parameter to these different methods on your data frame. And then this is actually a panel dashboard that's been served up in the browser. And you can see this is all generated from the the little bit of code on the right. So if you want to do interactive data analysis or exploratory data analysis, you can really do this um, very easily with this interactive function. And when I saw this, I kind of... (laughs) myself in the head because the <laughs> normally my pattern here was i had a cell at the top with a whole bunch of constants defined and you know i would manually go through and okay change the time start time from this time to this time or change right. this parameter yeah. to this and run it again and and over and over yeah, you gotta that,
0: remember to run all the cells that are affected exactly. by it. so the yeah. fact
2: that the fact that you can kind of do this um interactively while you're working um i could see how this would just you know you don't break your flow while you're trying to to work and the method chaining itself is I really like too, because you can comment out each stage of that, um, as you're going and debugging what you're working on. So, um, yeah, this is really neat. And I definitely, I, I put a link in the show notes to the actual talk, um, as well as this gist that Mark Skov-Matson put on GitHub and, um, yeah, it's, it blew my mind. I would have made my life a lot easier had I known about this earlier. So, um. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And one of the important things I, I think about plotting and uh, interactive stuff is it's not even if your end result isn't a panel or an interactive thing, um, uh, sometimes getting to see the see the plot, seeing seeing the data in a visual form helps you understand what you need to do with it.
2: Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I did a lot of work in the past with time series data and time series data, especially if this was sensor data, you had a lot of dropouts. Um, you might have spikes and, and you're always looking at it and trying to make some judgment about your filter parameters and, and being able to have that feedback loop between um, changing some of those and seeing what the result is,
0: um, is a huge
2: game changer. So,
0: yeah. yeah, And you, you can hand it off to someone else who's not writing the code and say, here, you play with it and you, you tell, you know, give it to a scientist or somebody. Oh, that's,
2: that's exactly right. That's what panel's all about is what the. The biggest challenge that I always had, and many data scientists have, is you do all your analysis in a notebook, but then you got to show your manager or you got to show your teammates. And going from that, go- going through that trajectory is can be very challenging. Um, these new tools are amazing to do that, but that's how I turned myself into a software engineer because that's what <laughs> I wanted to do. But I went out, went down the rabbit hole, and learned Flask and Dash and how to deploy web apps and all this stuff. And yeah,
1: well, I'm glad you did.
2: Yeah, maybe I wouldn't be here if I hadn't done that. But, but yeah, this is really (laughs) cool. And I definitely recommend people look at this. Um, there was also another talk, this, sorry, this is an extra, but, um, there was another talk at PyData global, um, hosted by Jim, James Bednar, who's our head of consulting, but he leads pyviz, which is a community for visualization tools, and it was a comparison of four different, um, dashboarding apps. So it was panel dash, um, voila and Streamlit. And they they just had, you know, main contributors from the four libraries talking about the benefits and pros and cons of all of them. So if anyone wants to go look at
0: those, I definitely recommend that too. That That sounds amazing. All those libraries are great. Nice.
1: Thanks. Oh, speaking of those extra parts of the podcast that make the podcast longer, uh, we should do some extras.
0: (laughs) We should. We should do some extras. Got any? Uh,
1: I don't have anything extra. Matt, how about you?
2: Yeah, um, two things. So first... um, you can show my screen um, last year Ataconda hired the piston developers piston is a faster implementation fork of CPython. Python um, I think it was at Instagram first I can't recall but anyway before right before the holidays they released um, pre-compiled packages for many of a couple hundred of the most popular Python packages so if you're interested in trying piston um, I put a link to their blog post in here um, they're using Conda right now they were able to leverage a lot of the conda forge recipes for building these. Um this is that binary compatibility challenge that we talked about earlier so yeah um i i know the team's looking for feedback on on that if you want to try that feel free to go there and it mentions in the blog that they're working on pip that's a little harder to just because of how um you know the build stages for all the packages aren't centralized with pip so it's a little more challenging for them to do that mm-hmm. um and then just the, the last thing is and if, um you know i i don't want to be too much of a, a salesman here but um we are hiring it's an amazing place to work and i definitely re- recommend anyone to go check it out if they're interested um so
0: fantastic yeah and you put a link in the show notes if people want to yeah it's job, Anaconda.
2: Right? Com slash careers um and we're doing a lot of cool stuff and growing so if anyone's looking for work in uh, in data science or just software and building out some of the things we're doing to try to help the open source community um and bridge that gap spelled it wrong bridge that gap between uh, enterprise and, and open source and data science in particular
0: out. Yeah, and definitely seems like a fun place to work. So cool. People looking for a change or for a fun Python job. Yeah, we're people do reach out too. Yeah, cool. People do reach out to Brian and me saying, "Hey, I really want to get a Python job. and doing other stuff, but how do I get a <laughs> Python job? Help us out." So we don't know, but uh, we can recommend places like Anaconda for sure. Yeah,
2: it yeah? looks like there's about 40 jobs right now, and uh, so
0: check it out. Fantastic. Oh wow, that's awesome. All right, well. would it it surprise you
1: if I had some extra things? It would surprise me if you didn't.
0: (laughs) All right. First of all, I want to say congratulations to Will McGugan. We have gone the entire show without mentioning Rich or Textual. Can you imagine? Almost, (laughs) But no. no. Only
2: because I knew you were going to talk about this. Otherwise, I would have thrown it in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Will last year, a while ago, I don't know the exact number of months back, but he was planning to take a year off of work and just focus on Rich and Textual. It was getting so much traction. He's like, I'm just going to you know, live off my savings and a small amount of money from the GitHub sponsorships and really see what I can do trying that. Well, it turns out he has plans to build some really cool stuff and has actually, all based around Rich and Textual in particular, and he has raised... A uh, first round of funding and started a company called textualize.io. How cool is that? Well, we don't know because we don't know what it's going to do. All you do is if you go there, it's like a, a command prompt. You just enter your email address. I guess you hit enter. Nice. If something happens, let's find out what happens. Yes, I'm confirmed. Uh, basically, you just get notified about when textualize comes out of stealth mode. But congrats to Will. That's fantastic. Another one we've spoken about tenacity. Remember that, Brian? Yeah. So tenacity is cool. You can say, here's a, a function that may run into trouble. If you just put at, you know, tenacity.retry on it and it crashes, it'll just try it again until it succeeds. That's probably a bad idea in production. So you might want to put something like stop after this or do a little delay between them or do both. I was having a race condition. We're trying to track when people are attempting to hack, <laughs> talk Python, the training site, the Python byte site and all that. And it turns out when they're, trying to attack your site they're not even nice about it they hit you with a botnet of all sorts of stuff and like lots of stuff happens at once and there was this race condition that was causing trouble so i i put retry a tenacity.retry boom solved it perfectly so i just wanted to say i finally got a chance to use this to solve some problems which was pretty cool that's really cool i
2: the other one that's similar to this which i've used and i think i don't know if you've used brian but it's called pytest test flaky yeah. and um it's awesome nice. because i was working with um This time series data historian i had a bunch of integration tests in my last job but you know network stuff it would drop out occasionally and so um you can do very similar type things and wrap your test um in an at flaky decorator and do similar type stuff and and you know give it three three tries or something before you make it fail yeah
0: exactly that's cool that's what my i think mine does three tries and it's like randomly a couple second delay or something uh Remember that part, Brian, where we talked about? It's really cool if people are in the audience while we talk about stuff and then get a little feedback. So Will McGugan says, hey, thanks, guys. Can't wait to tell you about it. Yeah, congrats, Will. That's awesome. Glad to see you out there. All right, uh, a couple of other things. Did you know that GitHub has a whole new project experience? That's pretty awesome. Have you seen this? I haven't. I haven't seen it. So you know how it's like this Kanban board, Kanban board, um, where you have like columns, you can move your issues between them. So just last week, they came out with this thing called a beta projects where it still can be that or it can be like an excel sort of view where you have little drop down combo boxes like i want to move this one to this column by going through that mode or as a board or you can categorize based on some specification like show me all the stuff that's in progress and then give me that as an excel sheet and all these different views you have for automation and then like there's APIs and all sorts of neat stuff in there. So if, if you've been using GitHub projects to do stuff, you know, you can check this out. It looks like you could move a lot of, a lot more work towards that on the project management side of software they used to.
2: This is really neat. Yeah. In my previous job, I was using Azure DevOps. Um, I was always wondering when some of those features might move to GitHub. I don't know if that's what happened here, but um, being able to have this type of project management in there for for you know, this type of things, is really, really great. Yeah. Super cool.
1: Yeah, one of the things I love about stuff like this is because uh, even, I mean, yes, a lot of companies do their project management on or projects on in GitHub or places like that. But also um, open source projects often have their often have the same needs of project management uh, as as it, private commercial projects. So, yeah, yeah,
2: I personally I, I only have a few open source small projects that are kind of personal. And no one would probably want to use them, but even just keeping notes about to do's and future stuff and uh, (laughs) it would be
0: really nice. Yeah. Just for future you, if nothing else, right? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So this is cool. Now the last, yeah, this last thing I want to talk about is Markdown. So um, Roger Turrell turned me onto this. Um, There's this new Markdown editor. uh, It's cross platform. Yes. Cross platform called Typora, And we all spend so much time in Markdown that just, wow, this thing is incredible. It's not super expensive and it looks like a standard Markdown editor. So you write Markdown and it gives you a, a wig. you know, what you see is what you get style of programming, which is not totally unexpected, right? But what is super cool is the way in which you interact with it. And actually, I am going to show you real quick. So you can see, you can see it and then you can tell people like, what do you think about this? Uh, here, I I think that's it. I'm back waiting there. Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> so here, here's here's mark, here's a markdown file for um, my course. Just the practices and whatever. You can say, you know what? I would like to view that in code style, right? Well, that's kind of cool. We want to edit this. You click here, and it becomes ooh, comes markdown. Becomes markdown. That's but this is a boring file. So let's see about. It has a whole file system that navigates like through your other markdown stuff hierarchically. So like here, chapter eight's a good one. So we go over to chapter eight on this and now you can see some more stuff like you can go to set these headings and whatnot but if you go to images like you can set a caption and then you could even change the image like right here if it were a png it's not but so put it back as jpeg and then it comes back you can come down and write a code fence um use the right symbol and you can say def a right whatever and then you pick a language isn't that isn't that dope oh this is so good so if if you end up writing a lot of Markdown, and if you need to get back, you just um, go back and switch back to raw Markdown and then go back to this fancy style. I, I think this is really a cool way to work on Markdown. I'm actually working on a book with Roger, and uh, it's got tons of Markdown. And it's been a real joy to actually use this thing on it. So, yeah. Does it have <laughs> VI mode? Oh not. I don't know about that, but it has themes. Like it oh, has, it has. Ha- I right. like can do like a, like a night mode, or I could do like a newspaper mode, or you know, take your pick. It's it's, it's pretty cool. The, yes.
2: the, weir- uh, the weirdo grad student in me is upset that this isn't LaTeX. But, it uh, has it
0: has built in LaTeX. Oh, it has. Like you can do, um, yeah, you can do like inline LaTeX, and you can. There's a bunch of settings you can set for the LaTeX. It's got a whole um a whole math section in there. I oh, believe. that's sweet. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. So, it. so, am
1: I the only person that went all the way through college pronouncing it LaTeX?
0: I did too, but I just learned that the cool way is saying LaTeX. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's LaTeX, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. French. No, I don't know. But no, yeah, it has it has support for like chemistry settings, like inline LaTeX and math and all sorts of good stuff. So yeah, it's it's. I'm telling that's, you, this thing's pretty that's slick. Really so, cool. All right. Well, I got to do my screen share back because, so you all can see the joke, because the joke is very good. And we're going to cover it. Where's but the joke? But it's at the end. It's at the end. So if people don't want to okay. listen to the joke, they don't have to. We, uh, yeah, Brian I, I blew it you did I blew it I blew it uh before we move off the markdown thing though Anthony Shaw says editorial for iPhone and iPad is really nice too um cool so but let, let's do let's do the joke so I I blew it because I was saving this all year I saw this like last March and I'm like this is gonna be so good for Christmas yeah and then we kind of like had already recorded the episode oh, we're not gonna do it. we'll just take a break over so yeah. we didn't have a chance to do it so Let's do it now. People are going to have to go back just a, a little tiny bit for this one. Are, are you ready? Yes. Matt, you ready? Uh, yeah. So this goes, this is sort of a, a data a database developer type thing here. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's on a, pr- I don't know why it's on a printout. But anyway, it's called SQL clause, as in SQL clause. So it's, he's making a database, he's sorting it twice, select star from contract, uh, contacts where behavior equals nice. SQL clause is coming it down. The- <laughs>
1: Nice. I it would have
0: been, so, <laughs> been so good for Christmas, but I, we yeah. can't keep it another year. I got to get it out. Of you got to
1: sing it. Sequel clauses coming, coming to town.
0: town. <laughs> yep. Exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. I want to share a joke that I don't have a picture for. All right, um, do it. But but my daughter made this up last week. I think she made it up, but it's just been cracking me up for, and I've been telling it to everybody. So it's a short one. Imagine you walk into a room and there's a line of people all lined up on one side that's it <laughs> that's the punchline
0: i love it so <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah, we've we got had d- my uh we had my my cookie candle oh, last nice. time nice my uh my candle these cookies we've got cookie a disclaimer.
2: a dad joke of the day channel in our slack at work and it's it makes me oof every
1: time <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice anyway. nice okay all right uh Nice to see everybody. Thanks, Matt, for joining the show. Thank you for Uh, having me. Good to see
0: you, Michael, again, as always. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click Submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, Just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.